Well, all throughout the world today, no doubt, God's people are remembering the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we make no small thing of that. In fact, the church, ever since the very beginning, has gathered on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, for that very reason, that we are remembering the resurrection of our Lord. And we do that each and every week. We remember the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. And you, some of you may be wondering why this morning I'm not preaching on the resurrection. Well, we'll be there in only a few weeks in Luke. And uh, so uh, instead of doing that back to back, we're going to <coughs> hit that in a few weeks as we get there in the Gospel of Luke. So we're just going to pick up where we've continued along in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 21. And we will be looking uh, today at verses 5 through 38 in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. The title of our sermon is Things to Come. And our key words for our worshipers in training are Temple, Jerusalem, and Son of Man. Now in our passage today, we enter into what one scholar has said has been the subject of more scholarly debate than perhaps any other passage in all of the Gospels. It's filled with Old Testament allusions in most every use that we will see. It's distinctively prophetic in nature. The genre of the text is uh, prophetic. It's apocalyptic literature. And whenever that kind of literature appears in the Bible... Uh, we never see widespread agreement among Christians. And this passage is not alone in that, but it is one of those passages. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's certainly no exception to all of this. Uh, the, the more extensive treatment of Jesus' words on the Olivet Discourse are actually in Matthew chapter 24. And Mark also records the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13 and has a very similar focus as Matthew. But any time we take on a passage like this, it's very important for us to remember the words uh, of our confession of faith that exhort us in chapter 1 and paragraph 7. It says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to all. So it shouldn't really surprise us that uh, this is difficult or that we don't all equally understand what it's saying or, or that we would even walk away from it somewhat scratching our heads a bit, wondering if we completely agree with conclusions uh, that have been drawn. So before we dive in this morning, I want to propose to you, as I've had to do with myself throughout the week, that we be willing to lay aside our preconceived ideas of what this passage may be about so we can look at it with fresh eyes. We can look at it within the context in which it's been written. We can look at it using the same method of interpretation that we use for the rest of the Bible. It's a difficult thing to do, no doubt, especially if you have already spent time in the past studying this passage. Maybe you've read it in anticipation this week. You, you may hear things this morning that don't necessarily settle well with what you've always assumed. So let's do our absolute best to come to the passage as objective as possible 
as we read and study in the Gospel of Luke. Now remember, the rule of all interpretation that is most important is what does the text mean in its context? In other words, it's not what do I want it to mean, what have I been taught it means, but what does it actually mean? And that's our goal. That's what we're trying to get at this morning. So let's get started. We're going to read the entire passage together so we can get the fullness of the context. Beginning Luke chapter 21 and verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another, That will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out of the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with, and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So, what's going on here? Well, a lot. <laughs> a lot is going on here. The disciples are hearing Jesus. They are looking around at all that surrounds them. They are admiring everything that they see. And they are saying, look at these adornments, these noble stones, these offerings, the temple. The Gospel of Mark says, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So let's get oriented here in the chronology of events during this final week of Jesus' life because, again, context is everything here. Remember, in the days just prior to this, Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. He entered into the temple and had conversations with scribes and Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees, and he shut them down repeatedly. And then last week, we we saw Jesus making this stark contrast between the scribes and the poor widow who gave all that she had to the treasury. So he exalted the the poor widow and passed judgment on the religious leadership of Israel. Remember, he said, they will receive the greater condemnation. So now Jesus has left the temple for good. He will not return to the temple. The cross awaits him, and there is no turning back at this point. And so we come to the Olivet Discourse, which are very fitting words from Jesus on the judgment of Jerusalem. This is really Jesus' final address. It's his farewell prophecy. So the disciples are admiring their surroundings as they look around the city, the wonderful stones and buildings. And Jesus says in verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, that may not strike you and me as significant. However, if you are a disciple of Jesus, standing in the middle of the most elaborate, beautiful, architectural work you've ever seen, and in the middle of it all is the center of all of your worship and religious life, it would strike you very hard. Imagine yourself, imagine standing at the foot of the World Trade Centers on September 10th, 2001, and someone says to you, tomorrow, these two massive towers are coming down, and not a bit of them will be preserved. They will be completely destroyed. And maybe in thinking that, we can get a sense of what the disciples were thinking. One minute, they're admiring it for all that it is. But then Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon its foundation. 
Now, to be clear, what we're saying is that Jesus is prophesying about the coming destruction of the temple. And that eventually happened some 40 years later in 70 AD. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And Jesus is saying, this temple will be completely flattened. Now, you have to remember what's going on in the minds of the disciples and the significance of the temple itself in Jewish life in the first century. We've said it many times. The Messiah was assumed to be coming to rule from that very place. To be a national ruler who would reign triumphantly from that very place. And the disciples believed it was going to be Jesus. And here he is now saying it's going to be destroyed. Furthermore, they assumed it would be from that very place where there would be perpetual worship to God according to the way in which they've always worshipped God. Uh, But apparently they weren't paying attention to the words of Jesus, to the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, Jesus said to her, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So this wasn't something the disciples would have heard and just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, what did they do? Well, we get the indication that they panicked a bit. In verse 7, they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? In other words, tell us what to look for because this is going to be awful. Now, before we push on, I I want to make something very, very clear in terms of its importance. Notice all throughout the passage that we're looking at this morning, the second person pronoun, you, that Jesus uses. There's something you need to remember, and this is so important. So remember this as we work through the passage. Here it is. You, and I only say this because it rhymes, you in the pew are not this you. You weren't there. He's talking to his disciples, not you personally. And this little key, when we understand this, unlocks a whole lot of the passage for us. He's answering his disciples' question when he says, you. So what does he say in response to their question? He tells them in verses 8 and 9 that when all of this happens, there's going to be widespread, immense panic among all the people. And this will be the perfect opportunity for false teachers to rise up and say, follow me. Now, we know something of this even today, don't we? This very week, there's been quite a dust-up over the so-called blood moons in the sky. Maybe you've heard there's been several prominent teachers saying that Jesus' second coming is to be very, very soon because there's been four blood moons in the span of 18 months. So apparently we're supposed to base our understanding of Christ's return on astrology now. A lot of you are old enough to remember just 14 years ago. The year 2000 began. Remember that? Y2K. Those three frightful letters, number. I knew people who built underground bunkers and bought enough food and water for a two-year supply and had more ammunition than a Sylvester Stallone movie. They were ready to go. There were teachers all over the world saying, this was it. This is the end. Prepare. 
It turned out to be a pretty uneventful time, didn't it? What about the false teacher Harold Camping? Remember him? Camping predicted that Jesus would return to the earth on May 21st, 2011, where the Christians would be taken up to heaven and that there would follow in five months fire and brimstone and plagues on the earth with millions of people dying each day, culminating on October 21st, 2011 with the final destruction of the world. Well, May 21st and October 21st, 2011 came and went. But do you remember all of the all of the panic about it, all of the talk, all of the questions. It was all over national news and people were considering what if what he's saying is true? It's the very same thing Jesus was warning his disciples about. Jerusalem will be destroyed. There will be immense panic all around, but do not be terrified. Be on your guard. True faith and panic are not married together. Panic is never evidence of faith. The mark of faith is poise in the midst of catastrophe. He's saying, dear disciples, do not panic. It's a great theme of the prophet Isaiah who said, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed upon God. Now Jesus goes on in verses 10 through 19 to tell his disciples to be prepared for opposition. It will come, and they need to be ready for it. Don't panic, but know that you will be opposed. Nation is going to rise against nation. Kingdom is going to rise against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and signs from heaven in the midst of this great panic. But you, my disciples, do not panic. Don't be terrified. But listen, you will be persecuted. Verse 12, while, while all of this is going on, look at, look at verse 12. He says, Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And is this not strikingly fulfilled in the book of Acts? Time and time again throughout the book of Acts, we read of the persecution of the apostles of the church. The book of Acts provides extensive examples of religious impostors and messianic pretenders. The first century historian Josephus reported that during the reign of the emperor Nero, deceivers and false prophets were arrested on a daily basis. As for military conflict, the period of 33 to 70 AD witnessed countless disputes. An uprising in Caesarea took 20,000 Jewish lives. At Scythopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 were slain. 10,000 killed in Damascus. When the emperor Caligula ordered his statue to be erected in the temple at Jerusalem in AD 40, the Jews refused. So they lived for the next 30 years in a state of fearful anxiety of imminent war with Rome. And they were in such distress that historians write that they wouldn't even till their land for their crops. 
The Annals of Tacitus covers events from A.D. 14 to 68, and he described the time period with such phrases as disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Corinthians, the war in Armenia. As for natural, natural disasters, the great famine happened in the year 44. It resulted in the disciples at Antioch mounting a huge relief effort uh, to, to relieve the burden of the Christians in Judea. We read about that in Acts eleven twenty nine. Three other famines occurred during the reign of Claudius. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suthonius both mention the prevalence of famines in this period of history, particularly a widespread famine throughout Rome in 51. Earthquakes were also common. Acts 16, 26 mentions one of them. There were earthquakes recorded in Crete and, and Smyrna and Miletus and, and Chios and Samos and Apima and Rome. The cities of Laodicea and Colossae were completely destroyed by an earthquake in 60. And Seneca wrote in AD 58, How often have the cities of Asia and Achaia fallen with one fatal shock. How many cities have been swallowed up in Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often has Paphos become a ruin? News has often been brought to us of the demolition of whole cities at once. As for Luke's mention of terrors and great signs from heaven in verse 11, it's a reference to what we call natural phenomena. Around the year 60, a comet appeared in the sky. All the historians write about it. During Nero's reign, it, it led to public speculation all about that the change in the political scene was about to take place. And then in the year 66, Halley's Comet appeared. And not long after that, as a result of that, Nero committed suicide. And Josephus wrote, There was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued an entire year. As for persecution and martyrdom, Jesus' reference to the synagogues and prisons and kings and governors is clearly a reference to the first century. After AD 70, when the Jewish religion and political system ceased to exist, there were no councils or synagogues. Again, we simply need to see this in the book of Acts, where persecution is mentioned so often. So we could go on and on about how these things were coming true throughout the 37 years between Jesus' prophecy and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, but surely you get the point. Jesus is telling his disciples, be prepared for opposition. And then he tells them in verse 13, this is your opportunity. Now, that seems like the exact opposite of what we anticipate for ourselves, right? Everything around you is coming down in your life. You are going to be persecuted unto death. Be prepared for this opposition and don't miss this opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We want to hide, but Jesus tells his disciples, don't miss this. I will be there and I will help you. He affirms them in verses 16 through 19. Even in death, not a hair on your head will be harmed. Martyrdom will not 
ultimately kill you. You will be safe with me. You have nothing to fear but fear itself. So you see, our Lord Jesus is encouraging the disciples, knowing that the days are coming where there would be tumult and pain, and yet they were to have no fear. They were to have great faith. The worst that would happen to them would be that they would lose their lives, but then they're with Christ in heaven. So that's not too bad of a deal, huh? Jesus does give them warning, though, in verses 20 through 24. He tells them when the time comes, it will be important for them to retreat to safety. Now, I want you to notice, again, that Jesus is still using the personal pronoun, you. They're almost exactly one generation away from Jerusalem's destruction, And the time will come when they will see their city surrounded by armies. And this is a time, Jesus says, when they will know that its desolation has come near. So what does he tell them? When that time comes, it's time to flee. Get out of town. Retreat to safety. That's interesting, isn't it? He tells them that they would be persecuted and that's the time to stand. For, for his namesake. But there's also a time for a strategic retreat. It's a military concept. When the, the commander of a unit is assessing the battle, he has to decide if it's worth it or not. Am I going to lose the whole war so that I can fight this battle to the death? And that applies to us, doesn't it? There's a time to stand, but there's also battles we don't need to fight. There's times to speak up, but there are times to focus our attention on what matters the most, that we might strategically win the overall war. But Jesus describes the woes for people who are under distress and stress, namely those pregnant and those who are nursing babies. It's distress caused by war and expelling of the people from their land and homes, making travel difficult. If you've ever had a newborn baby, you realize that traveling on foot to the hills would be a very difficult thing to do. He says many would fall by the edge of the sword. Others would be led into captivity. According to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews perished in the siege and another 97,000 were carried away into captivity. The same thing Jesus says will happen. In verse 24. So Jesus is telling his disciples to leave the city when it is surrounded for the sake of the gospel when the time comes. And brothers and sisters, the horrors of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 make 9-11 seem like a very small thing. Josephus wrote extensively about the destruction of Jerusalem the people who were massacred, the unbelievable suffering of those days. But Jesus, in the midst of all of this, gives a bit of a word of encouragement. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. How is that encouraging? Well, at the very least, it means this. It will not go on forever. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 by the Romans fulfilled Jesus' prophetic statement. It is the time of the casting out of natural Christ-denying Israel 
who through the rejection of the Messiah and persecution of the Christians has symbolically become Ishmael or Egypt, a nation known for the persecution of God's people. So here's what I'm saying in all of this, that the events of this text fall within the same time parameters. So the times of the Gentiles in treading or trampling under the foot, Jerusalem reached its conclusion in AD 70 within the generation then living at the time of Christ in the first century. How is this the fulfillment of the time of the Gentiles? Well, since the time of the Israelites' captivity by the Babylonians, the Jews were ruled by Gentile nations, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. However, Daniel prophesied the demise of this foreign rule over the people of God as it primarily related to Judah in the southern kingdom of Israel. That was the remaining portion of God's people after the rest of them had been cut off and assimilated into the Gentiles. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35, he prophesied the end of Gentile domination and the destruction of the images by the stone cut out of the mountains without hands. The stone represents the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom not of this world. And Jesus taught that repeatedly. Unfortunately for Judah, they too suffered in the destruction of the image, which is precisely what is described in verses 20 through 24. At the same time, God ends the rule of the Gentiles. He shatters the power of the nation of Israel represented as the little horn in Daniel who wars against the saints until the Son of Man comes and defeats and destroys their dominion. You see, Gentile rule is ended because the nation of Israel was completely and utterly destroyed. And just to be clear, I'm saying that the nation of Israel that exists today is not the nation of Israel we read about in the Bible. They are not the people of God we read about. The nation of Israel that we see in the scriptures was completely destroyed in 70 AD. Now, up to this point, Jesus has told his disciples to be on guard, to be prepared for the coming opposition, and to be safe when the army surround the city and to retreat. And if I still have you with me up to this point, I'm about to really ask you to try and be as objective as possible. Because I fear I may lose some of you. So bear with me. Hear me out. Let's read again verses 25 through 28. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now we know that Jesus' favorite name for himself was Son of Man. And here he is saying, look for the Son of Man in verse 27. So the million dollar question is, what is the coming of of the Son of Man. Well, where does that language, Son of Man, come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Daniel's vision. The Son of Man comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days and receives an everlasting kingdom that cannot be destroyed. So a few things I want to point out here. First is this. The language that Jesus uses here in verses 25 and 26 is what we call apocalyptic language. Believe it or not, we see that even in writing today. Think of all that was written about 9-11 with language that sounded like the end of the world. It's really talking about the end of the world as we know it. And if you ever listen to REM, you're singing that song in your head right now. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. (laughs) So Jesus is using language here that was very much the language of the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel. The prophets spoke of... God's judgment on the nations surrounding Israel in apocalyptic terms. And now Jesus is drawing on this language to talk about the horrors of the destruction of Jerusalem. Secondly, how is Jesus speaking about the Son of Man coming? I contend that Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7 is not the Son of Man coming at the end of time. The picture Daniel paints is the Son of Man coming to the throne of the Ancient of Days when all the work has ended. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, going to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom and then to share that kingdom with the saints throughout the world and throughout the ages. So it's an event that takes place at the end of the Lord's earthly ministry, not at the end of the history of of the universe. And one of the signs of this is that the gospel is now international. That lies in Christ's kingdom and his his passing judgment on those who have refused his kingdom. The gospel speaks of taking the kingdom from one nation and giving it to all the nations. So when God comes to desecrate the temple, he deconsecrates Jerusalem so that from every direction, north, south, east, and west, people can come to the new temple, which is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the temple, and it is to Jesus whom we come to worship. Thirdly, notice what Jesus says in the parable of the fig tree in verses 29 through 33. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, maybe it's obvious to you right away, but notice verse 32. What does Jesus say? Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Jesus is clear here. All these things, everything that he has spoken of, Jesus says, will take place during the lifetime of the disciples' generation. Now, please hear me. 
I am not denying a final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there won't be a second coming of Christ. I believe that such an idea is heretical. And that voids most biblical passages. It destroys our hope as believers. But what I am saying is that in Luke's recalling of the Olivet Discourse, he's not dealing with the final judgment. He's dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. Fourthly, notice I said in Luke's recalling of the Olivet Discourse, he's not dealing with final judgment. However, in Matthew and Mark, they go on beyond where Luke goes and include further teaching from Jesus on these matters. And if you've spent any time at all studying this, you've probably focused mainly on Matthew 24, but Luke's focus is different. All of the gospel writers had a bit different focus. Luke had a very specific reason for recording what he did. Remember all the way back to our very first sermon on Luke. Who was Luke writing to? Luke was writing to a pagan Roman man named Theophilus. And Luke's hope is that through this gospel account and through the book of Acts as well, that he will see Theophilus become a Christian. Now, when you think of a pagan Roman man reading about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it really had no more significance to to him than would of the destruction of the temple of Diana or any of the other pagan gods. In terms of his connection, it meant absolutely nothing. Again, consider 9-11 to Americans, that's a significant event. Ah, But to people in the rest of the world, it didn't change their lives. It's just two numbers on a calendar. But like us, when we think of that tragic day, the Jerusalem temple and its destruction meant in the minds of Jesus' hearers that the end of the world as we know it was coming. But you see, Theophilus didn't believe in all of that. He was a Roman. In fact, members of his family were probably a part of the destruction of Jerusalem. So Luke would have been very careful to not distract Theophilus from his point with a discussion regarding the end of the world, but was dealing instead with something that would very likely take place during his very own lifetime. When Luke wrote his gospel, he was only about eight years away from 70 AD. It was about 62 when Luke was writing. So it's as though Luke was thinking, even if Theophilus and I lose contact, I'm going to focus on planting a gospel time bomb in his mind. And it's going to go off as soon as all of this happens. And then Theophilus would see it all and think Luke spoke the truth. Jesus really was the Son of God. Think about it. When we evangelize people, are we going to sit down and have discussions with them about eschatology? Are we going to enter into a lengthy discourse about superlapsarianism or something like that? No, we want to focus on the main thing. Luke was pointing to evidence of the main thing. Major issues that would be big time bombs for Theophilus. Fifthly, notice verses 28, 31, and 36. Jesus is still using the personal pronoun you in the temple, not you in the pew. Not you and I, but the disciples. Everything he says is pertaining to the current generation, and it will not pass away until it is all accomplished. Does this mean Luke didn't believe in the second coming of Christ? Of course Luke believed in the second coming of Christ. 
But it wasn't part of this sermon. The coming of the Son of Man in verses 25 and following was the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and glory. It was his coming in judgment to destroy this nation that had so fiercely and for so long rejected him and killed him. Would we think a nation that killed our Savior would be able to continue on? One of the reasons we can say this is Matthew 10, 23. Jesus told his disciples, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, coming in judgment and destruction. Well, Israel was destroyed and they didn't get through all of the towns beforehand. And how does Jesus describe it? He says, before the Son of Man comes. Again, not talking about the end of time, but rather the end of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus applies all of this to his disciples in verses 34 through 38. He tells them to watch and pray. And remember, by the end of this week, what happens? They're sleeping, not watching, not praying. And if that was the case then, how much more they needed to be warned by Jesus of what was to come. And so we might look at all of this and say this, so what? If you're saying this is true, what does it have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. As we look back at AD 70, we see, as Jesus says, this is an act of divine judgment for refusing the final prophet that God sent. It was an act of terrible judgment for refusing the Messiah, Jesus. And it was also a mighty indication of God that there was now only one priest, there was now only one sacrifice who would make atonement for the sins of all people in the ages. It wasn't going to be carried on in Jerusalem, and it wasn't, right? Jesus was crucified where? Outside the city walls. And in 70... He wrapped it all up. I will not have sacrifices offered in Jerusalem to me because my son's sacrifice outside of Jerusalem was sufficient. And did you know it's never been repeated? For 2,000 years, Jerusalem's been trampled underfoot and it's an astonishing mark of this reality. Some of the disciples that heard this in the aftermath of 70 AD thought, He's the king of all the earth. It was hard for them to take it, given all their prejudices against the Gentiles. But God never intended for his grace to go to one people and to one nation. He intended for his son to be for all the world in every age and place and language and time. And friends, you cannot resist what God is doing in exalting his son as the son of man who reigns and shares his kingdom with his people. You cannot resist with impunity. Do you not see what happened to Jerusalem? It's only a foretaste of the final judgment of God on the cities of man and all who have rejected him. You will not escape the judgment to come if you are resisting Christ, the king of all nations. 
And this is why Jesus comes proclaiming from the very onset of his ministry, repent, repent, believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Trust in him that your sins be forgiven, that you be spared from the coming judgment. God deconsecrated the temple of the very people who rejected him. And because God deconsecrated that temple, we, brothers and sisters, may know the presence of God at 226 Goshen Road even more fully than the greatest of high priests ever knew the presence of God in the holiest of holies. Because we know Jesus, and he has promised to never leave us and to never forsake us. And if this is what happens when the Son of Man comes in judgment on one city, how fearful when he comes in judgment on the whole world. This is why when we look to God's infinite patience with this world, we must serve him fervently for his glory because the coming of Christ in the next grand event is that which the power of the Son of Man will be displayed on all the earth. Do not panic. The gospel will be opposed, but look to Christ and be grateful that in this place, the Lord Jesus has promised to gather us to himself as God's final temple to worship and praise him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. And we're thankful, Lord, even when the word is presented to us as a challenge, a challenge to think and to contemplate and to seek to understand. And Father, while we readily recognize that we see right now through the glass dimly, we do await that great day when you reveal all things to us clearly, without hindrance without misunderstanding, and without any lacking in truth and wisdom. And so we pray, Father, that you help us to continue to think through your word. And most ultimately, that we think through this reality of your judgment, that while you have come in mercy and love in the Lord Jesus, that you have also come in judgment and that all who are separated from Christ all who walk in their own ways all who call themselves the king of their own Father we pray that you would be pleased to bring them to repentance and faith in Christ that they would flee the judgment that is yet to come And for us as your children, Lord, we pray that we be found diligent, pursuing all that you call us to in your kingdom, that we would be watchful, that we would not be fearful, and that we would constantly rejoice in Christ our Savior and all that he has accomplished in rescuing us, his children, from the judgment that is to come for his namesake and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.